In the talk this evening, I'd like to look at the areas of faith and motivation and the hindrances. For many of us as Westerners, the whole subject of faith is one that we often have very mixed feelings about. If you were to ask yourself what you do have faith in, you may not find that there are that many answers that come readily to your consciousness. In many ways, faith is something that is also even discouraged in our culture. We are raised on a diet of something of psychological materialism where we want evidence and we want proof before we have faith in something. We want some system or some object or some person's value first to be proven to us, to be shown to us in a way that we can analyze and see for ourselves. And then, after it's been proven its worth, we may venture to place a little faith in someone or something. Even in our culture, we may find in our own backgrounds that a certain cynicism is even encouraged, that we find ourselves first bringing a sense of suspiciousness, doubt to many things, many systems, many people, rather than a real strong quality of faith. Yet, it is curious, too, that when we come to spirituality, we can't avoid an understanding, awareness of the fact that faith is the foundation, the cornerstone of almost every spiritual tradition. I don't know if there are any exceptions to that. Faith is considered to be one of the ingredients that allows us to deepen faith in what is not proven to us, faith in what we haven't already seen through our own eyes and through our own understanding, <coughs> faith in a sense of otherness or the sacred or enlightenment or liberation. We are asked to extend a sense of faith in all of these if we are to travel on any spiritual path a faith in something certainly others tell us that it is true, that it is real, that it is valid. Yet we may not have seen it for ourselves. And this faith in something other, something sacred, something beyond our own perceptions, is so often what actually inspires us to travel this path. Obviously we don't sit here in order to suffer, 
We don't sit here in order to become more closely acquainted with our capacity to be bored. We don't sit here to become more intimately acquainted with the makeup of our knees and our backs, etc. There is some sense of something out there, something sacred, which is possible for us, and yet which may not be revealed. The emphasis upon faith is one of the major differences that exists, too, between the Mahayana and the Theravadan traditions of Buddhism. We have all heard the Zen stories, the Mahayana stories, of those who, people, aspirants, who want to practice, being left to stand outside gates of monasteries to prove their faith their determination. We've all heard the stories of seekers and yogis and aspirants who are put through many kind of tests and challenges before they're accepted as students, as disciples, in order to deepen their faith and their determination. When I know myself, when I first went to India, with a naive youngster. I went to a Mahayana teacher and in my Western arrogance assumed, of course, that I would be immediately accepted as a student and immediately be given the most profound of teachings. And instead I was really told <coughs> to go away. And every day I used to go back and was still told to go away for over a period of a couple of months. And after two months, the geshe presented me with a box of noodles, which I don't know if it had some esoteric significance (laughs) or not. But what it signified was that he was willing to accept me as a student. And even then, of course, I anticipated that I would immediately be initiated into profound tantric practice. And instead, I was sent away for a period of more than a year to do many prostrations, mantras, and primarily to reflect. To reflect on very specific subjects, to reflect in very specific ways, And the reflections were often very guided reflections. And the reflections were essentially to cultivate the qualities of mind and heart that my teacher felt were necessary in order to deepen in meditation, to cultivate the right qualities of mind and heart that he felt were essential to bring to meditation practice. The reflections, as I say, were varied. They were very traditional reflections, such as reflecting upon the plight of a blind tortoise who swam in an ocean, and every 50 million years or so, he would be able to come to the surface, and on the surface of the ocean, there would be floating a golden ring, and to reflect on what his chances were of surfacing right under this golden ring, so his head would go through it. 
And so, too, were my chances of practicing the Dharma right. Slim. Some of the reflections would be about my own relationship to the world around me, to the creatures and to the people that made up the different dimensions of the universe, and to reflect on whether it was possible to relate to every sentient being as if in the grand kind of cosmic scheme of life they had once been or would once be my mother, and how would I wish to relate to them? How would I wish to be with them? This has obviously presented some difficulties for some of the Western students there. I remember one of them saying to the Geshe, Geshe, I don't even like my mother. And this is how you want me to relate to all sentient beings? (laughs) And him looking in shock as if this was possible that somebody would actually dislike their mother. The reflections that were really encouraged, and traditionally are still very much encouraged in the Mahayana tradition, is really to cultivate a sense of vision and faith. The reflections were, the purpose of the reflections and the prostrations and all of the other preparatory work was never to exercise an already over-exercised mind or to create some fantasy picture of the cosmos or to create some kind of illusory relationship to the Dharma. The practice, the reflections and the work was really to cultivate a very vast and expansive and profound vision of the Dharma, of the practice, and of the potential of the practice, and to cultivate, too, a quality of motivation and dedication and commitment that was really in line with that vision. The reflections were really to cultivate an expansive vision that was able to reveal, basically, that the practice was really not just for my personal improvement or my liberation or any individual's liberation, but every cultivation of Dharma practice and every cultivation of spiritual practice is in order to bring to an end all suffering, to bring to an end the pain and the suffering of all beings. The Dharma practice was really for the cultivation of peace and compassion and wisdom and freedom, not just for one person or for one group of people, but for all beings in the universe. And the reflections, too, were to cultivate a profound sense of faith and trust in the practice and in one's own possibilities to bring the practice to fruition. In the Theravadan tradition of meditation, which is really where this practice we do here is rooted, very different, very little emphasis is given to any kind of preparatory work for doing a retreat um, or for practicing meditation in any way. No one checks your credentials, whether you come in, you know, how high your faith element registers or 
you know, how many prostrations you've done or, you know, what your vision is isn't checked by the Dharma police. Basically, if there's room and you have the time and the energy, then anyone is welcome on a retreat. Now, that open-hearted welcome that is really a characteristic of the Theravadan tradition is not in any way a denial of the importance of motivation or the importance that faith does play. Rather, I feel it's more of an expression of an implicit trust that as a person sits and as a person deepens in meditation and deepens in understanding that really the right motivation and the faith that is needed will actually emerge out of that understanding and out of that practice. And there's an implicit trust in that, I feel, which is extraordinarily powerful. Now clearly, there are pros and cons, I feel, to both of these approaches to meditation. Clearly in the Mahayana tradition, this emphasis on developing faith, on developing motivation, does mean that most people who actually finally get to begin to practice are highly motivated and highly dedicated yogis. And yet you also can't help but wonder how many great aspiring yogis are turned off and turned away by the kind of demands that are made by the teachers who hold the keys to the practice. <coughs> and also sees, too, my own experience tells me that so often it happens that when we come to meditation practice without any real awareness of our motivation, without any real understanding of our intentions, and without any real vision of our own possibilities and the possibilities of the practice, that too often <clears throat> doubt becomes a burden that weighs us down and trips us up again and again. Faith, I feel, is an extraordinarily important ingredient in deepening in meditation and in deepening in understanding that as we do this practice, it is a rare person who doesn't encounter valleys, difficulties, and obstacles. And it is so easy in those times of shadow and times of difficulty to feel so much doubt in ourselves, in what we do, in where we're going with what we do. And it's also my experience that doubt, mistrust, a lack of faith, that that doubt is one of the most paralyzing and debilitating feelings we can experience in our own spiritual journey. And even as we may understand and see the importance of faith and the importance of motivation, we also probably can't help but wonder Really, where is this faith supposed to come from? 
What on earth do we base any deep faith upon? What do we really need to have faith in, or what kind of faith that do we need? Because it's probably also our own experience in our lives that there are many different qualities of faith, and they're not all helpful to us. Not all of the qualities of faith we have experienced have been helpful. For example, we can see that at times when we come to meditation practice, we come often with two, two things may be present. One of them is that when we come to meditation practice, we may be seeking for something that we haven't been able to find elsewhere in our lives or in ourselves. We may be seeking for answers. We may be seeking for a particular kind of experience. We may be seeking for another way of seeing for some kind of change. And we, that seeking happens, or we end up coming to retreats. Because we haven't been able to find the answers of where to find that in other areas of our lives, not that we haven't tried, but those answers haven't been forthcoming. Other times people come to retreats at moments and at points of dissatisfaction in their lives. Sometimes just a lukewarm dissatisfaction, feeling that really everything is not as it could be, that really we would like to be living in a fuller, more vital, richer, wiser way. Or sometimes we come in a real crisis of dissatisfaction a real crisis of suffering even, where there doesn't seem to be much that we can rely upon in our lives, where we feel things are falling apart, where we feel directionless or shattered by some experience or another. And again, we come to this path, this inner seeking, looking for change and looking for answers. Now sometimes the presence the presence of that seeking for answers and seeking for changes, it can be quite a desperate seeking. It can be moderate curiosity, but it can also be a almost desperate seeking. And there's dangers in that because we are very quick to place faith in things. Sometimes we place faith because there's not many other people talking we tend to place faith in the person or the people who seem to be authorities in different spiritual traditions. And we look to them for answers or for solutions or for formulas. And it's very easy in that to elevate individuals, to elevate teachers onto pedestals as being so important, as being powerful, as being some kind of authority, and to place great faith in them. And yet, as much as we make, we also must appreciate the desire that exists, or can exist in many of us, for heroes. And as much as we tend to make a hero out of anyone, they also just as easily become a villain. When they don't fulfill our expectations, when they don't offer us the particular answers we would like to hear, when they don't offer us the solutions that seem to work so quickly for us, and the amount of faith 
we have invested becomes the amount of pain we experience upon the dis- disappointment or disillusionment <coughs> that comes about. There's also a danger too in projecting that kind of faith outwardly in that we can so much learn or be so intent on listening to others that we can easily become quite deafened to listening inwardly. We can become almost banished from our capacity to listen to ourselves. Another kind of faith or another direction that faith is often extended is towards techniques and methods and traditions and systems. And we've all, if you have any experience in the spiritual path at all, we have all encountered this horrendous narrow-mindedness and one-upmanship that can exist in spirituality. There are so many owners of the truth and so many owners of the most direct way to enlightenment and the right way to practice and the right path in spirituality that again, it too, this kind of brief flare of faith, this kind of passionate faith that is born often out of fear and the need to belong and the need to be supported and the need to be protected. That kind of brief passion or flare of faith equally can become such deep depths of despair and disillusionment and feelings of disappointment. I think it is clear that the faith that is needed to deepen in this practice needs to be much wider than just a devotional faith that is directed to a person or a system or a method or a technique. And this is where the whole area of intention and motivation in this practice is so important. When we come to meditation, And as we spend some time in this path, we do see, actually, that our motivation for doing the practice is almost constantly undergoing change as our own understanding of the practice changes and as our understanding of ourselves changes too. Our initial motivation may, or frequently, is to do with ourselves. We would like some inner change that enables us to make some outer changes. Our initial motivation for most people in doing the practice is quite clearly, you know, it's not for all beings. I mean, maybe we would like to hope that at some point in the future it will be for all beings, but the person we tend to be most concerned with in the beginning of our practice is clearly ourselves. We don't often get two hoots about what our neighbor's doing, you know, whether they're squirming in knee pains, you know, we only wish that they'd stop annoying us. (laughs) But the initial motivation (laughs) is often to do with personal change. It's totally understandable. We would like to be free of pain and limitation. We have a sense within us of our own potential. To live as wise and caring and compassionate and open-hearted people. We sense we have that potential. We sense we have the potential to bring about the end to fear, to anxiety, 
to feeling limited and constricted in our lives. And we hope that the meditation is going to bring this about through personal insights, through personal revelation, through changes in our own consciousness. Now, as understandable as this motivation is for doing meditation, I can only say that it is a motivation that does indeed and almost inevitably will create and pose some problems for us. Because we can see that as we sit and as we develop, develop the practice, that we are filled with faith in what we are doing when everything is going well. It's true. You know, you, you, I mean, people absolutely you know, want to proclaim, can hardly you know, maintain silence. They want to proclaim how wonderful the practice is when everything is going well. You know, you want to write home to your mother, you know, tell your neighbors. You know, when you sit and you have some wonderful, profound insights and some terrific experiences and some real tastes of peace and calm and, you know, maybe a hit of bliss, faith is boundless. It is deep. It is committed. And the motivation for continuing the practice then is so extraordinarily strong. We also see how easily that faith seems to dissolve when we hit the valleys and when we hit the obstacles and when we hit the hindrances. How at those moments when we feel like an absolute novice we feel overwhelmed and paralyzed by doubt. And how quickly that doubt can arise. You know, you don't know why you're doing this anyway. You know, you feel critical of everybody else. You know, why they're walking around like zombies. And, you know, you think it's all pointless. And you wonder why on earth you spent your holiday here. <laughs> you know, when you could be out having a good time after all. You know, and the doubt comes rushing in. The doubt not only in the practice, but also so often with the doubt in oneself. How often the obstacles and the valleys signal that kind of lack of trust inwardly, <coughs> that I am unable to do it. And how much when we feel ourselves critical of others or critical of the practice, how much that criticism is camouflaging our doubt in our own capacity to do it. And how, how difficult that is really to live with. What an extraordinarily hard feeling, incredibly painful feeling, that lack of trust inwardly is. It's difficult to really sustain the practice when we are constantly, when our faith is pinned to and dependent upon constantly going through highs in meditation. Because no one has an endless series of highs in this practice. No one has an endless series of jolly moments and of good experiences. For everyone, this practice is a time of valleys and a time of peaks. 
And if our faith is only present when we are on the peaks, quite frankly, we do not have the strength and the openness and the understanding to learn what is offered to us in the valleys. Our faith, it is not enough to pin our faith upon signposts, upon being able to gain and make progress. Our faith needs to be much more substantial than being based upon just doing well or progressing. It needs to be founded on something much deeper than progress and gain. Otherwise, the signposts become too important. You know, signs of failure mean the entrance of doubt, and signs of progress mean the entrance of faith. The faith we need to discover actually needs to be much deeper than this. It is so helpful, I feel, and necessary to cultivate a sense of vision and motivation for doing this practice, for traveling on this journey, to cultivate a very vast and wide sense of vision. We cannot measure or evaluate the worth of any single sitting. We cannot measure or evaluate the ways in which one sitting, one retreat, contributes to the level of peace and compassion in the world around us. We can't measure in any way the mark that our own practice and our own commitment to living in peace, the mark that that makes on the world around us. We can't even measure the ways in which we change, the ways in which we are actually more and more free of destructive emotions and states of mind, fears and defensiveness. We have no measurement that applies in this practice. Therefore, we can't rely too much on signposts. How many times we feel, you know, we've sat through a retreat or a sitting, it's been a total waste of time, and you leave a sitting and suddenly something is so clear to us, or we find our sensitivity is so present. How many times even we've sat a retreat and wondered why we did it, and left it and suddenly found that something has really changed? How many times we felt that we haven't had any insights in days or months and we encounter a situation where previously we would be filled with anger or defensiveness or fear and the reaction's not there anymore. We can't measure that. Every time we sit with a motivation of just being present, of really cultivating calmness, of really learning what it means to be at peace with each moment and with ourselves. That single gesture makes a profound impact upon our own consciousness and upon the world around us. Each time we are clear in our motivation, clear in our sitting, we are a conscious participant in the creation of each moment. And that is an extraordinary thing to be in our world, to be a conscious participant in the creation of each moment, without expectation, without demands for results, without demands of any kind, except to be consciously present in a way of peace and awareness and compassion. This practice truly is 
for the end of all suffering. It is truly is for the liberation of all beings. Sometimes when we listen to others, you know, we doubt what we hear from different authorities, we doubt different systems. In a way, that doubt can be almost a blessing because it leaves us nowhere to turn except to the present moment. And sometimes that doesn't seem to offer us a great deal. And yet if we can truly be open-hearted, totally open-hearted in one moment at a time, we do begin to understand that the present moment is our most profound teacher. It's the mirror for us. It shows us what we need to see. It shows us what we need to develop. It shows us what we need to let go of. I want to look just very briefly the place of faith in relationship to the hindrances. In understanding that the most important faith of all is the faith in our own potential to be conscious and awake and free human beings. At the most sustaining faith is the faith in our own capacity to live with wisdom. There is this curious phenomena that happens at the beginning of retreats, which is called the presence of the hindrances. Now, we all know about the hindrances, the dullness, the restlessness, the negativity, the craving and the doubt that is so much or so often the most frequent experience in the beginning of a retreat. Now, we've, most people have had them. Most people consider them to be normal. That's what's normal in the beginning of a retreat. You come in and you sit and you feel dull or you feel restless or you feel very negative or you feel filled with doubt and you've had it before and you know that if you sit through it that in a one-week retreat after two and a half days or three days they'll disappear. In a weekend retreat after three hours they'll disappear. In a month's retreat after one week they will disappear. You look around, you see that everybody else seems to have them too because you see your neighbors are doing this rhythmic motion or else they're doing the, the kind of zafu shuffle and you know it's a relatively comforting construct that this is just a normal part of the beginning of a retreat and like all other retreats you know if you wait them out they are once more going to disappear it's a relatively comforting construct I don't feel it's a particularly true one I feel that there are two levels to the hindrances. One of them is this one we also always talk about, about adjustment. You know, you're adjusting to being on a retreat. You know, you're letting your mind slow down and your body settle in and all that. You know, we, we're very reassuring that they go away. But there's a whole other level to the hindrances that have nothing to do with adjustment. There's a whole level of these, another level to these phenomena of dullness and restlessness and doubt that has much to do with control and grasping and fear. The hindrances act as a blanket. The hindrances tend to distance us, serve to distance ourselves from our own experience. 
When you come onto a retreat, one of the first actualities you manage to understand is that you are not in control of almost anything you thought you were. First of all, you're not in control of your outer environment. You can't boot the person out of your room who snores. You can't hassle with the person who wants the window open. When you want it closed, it's considered to be some sort of spiritual weakness to portray this irritation. There's very little you can do. You know, the food runs out. There's very little you can do to control your outer environment. But worse is yet to come. Because when you sit, you have a peep into your mind, and you find that you cannot control your inner environment. And this is an extraordinarily shocking experience to many people. You know, you say, be peaceful mind, and your mind chatters on. You say, be focused mind, and your mind is off in past and future. And then you tell yourself, you know how lucky you are to be here, and how happy you should be, and you're feeling miserable. And nothing seems to be within that area of control, and it can be a shattering experience. It is often an experience that evokes a great deal of fear that we're not always conscious of. There is little that we can control, and we equate that with being out of control, which we frequently, too frequently, equate with fear. And so the hindrances come to block it out as a way of controlling our particular situation. If we don't have the... Now, what happens is, or we use our strategies... Now, we use our strategies in relationship to the hindrances, and this is really important to understand how we do this, how we often have our own little package of strategies for dealing with the unpredictable and the threatening in life. For some people, the strategy is fantasy. It's difficult. Find somewhere nicer to be. And we can find it with the mind. For another person, the strategy is willpower. I can get through this. You know, it's not going to get the better of me. I can sit through this pain, or I'll sit through this dullness, or I'll sit through this negativity. For another person, the, the strategy takes the form of, you know, uh, constantly uh, of indulgence. You know, poor me. You know, I've got it worse than anybody else, and it's because of this and that and the other. You know, and we feel, find a place of being a victim that is all right to be in. We all tend to have strategies, and amazingly enough, they seem to work at times. Because we find, often in the beginning of retreat, you know, once you've got over that business of waiting out the hindrances, strategies comes next. And we find that after a day, you know, a day or so, the hindrances seem to end. And we feel, aha, well, that worked. You know, I'll use that one again. It really worked. But often what has happened, it's not so much that um, the hindrances have been overcome, but rather after a day or two in retreat, we feel once more again in control. We have our territory mapped out, small and confined as it may be. We have our little place <coughs> with our little blanket and our, you know, it's mine. We have our little place carved out in the bedroom. We know the schedule. We know the routine. And we can rely to some extent upon our strategies working inwardly. And we feel reassured again. We feel once more in control. And we feel, oh, well, that, my strategies worked. But what is interesting in meditation is that as the meditation deepens and becomes more subtle, so do the hindrances. 
the hindrances simply become more subtle. And we find that every time we meet something in the meditation that is difficult, and the difficulties become much more subtle as we go on, that the hindrances return again. You know, as you, as you find that perhaps your belief systems about yourself are very much challenged, as you find that things begin to fall away and there doesn't seem to be much to grasp hold of, how much the hindrances arise again. And one must really be wary, I feel, of overusing the strategies because the strategies can in themselves become hindrances. Our faith needs to be not so much in the strategies. Our faith, I feel, that really deepens in this practice is our faith and our capacity to be open-hearted in each moment. In the Tibetan tradition, which is more colorful than this one, hindrances are referred to as demons. And we all have our demons. For some people, their demon is dullness. For some people, their demon is anger. For some people, their demon is passivity. For another person, their demon is their willpower. We all have our demons, and we can be sure we will meet our demons here. <laughs> we need to think how we are going to meet our demons. There's a story a great Tibetan saint called Milarepa, who was well known for his capacity to live on nettles. Therefore, he is always pictured as being somewhat green. <laughs> he is also well known for his meditative capacity. This is a poem about Milarepa. Milarepa was out one day collecting some nettles. He went back to his cave and he found that there were seven metal demons in his cave with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding grain, and some sat performing magical tricks. As soon as Milarepa saw them, he was terrified. He didn't quite know what to do. First, he reverted to his strategies. He meditated, meditated on his deity. He said a subjugating mantra. He performed a gaze and aroused the deity's presence. And then he tried meditating again, but he was unable to pacify the demons. And he thought, well, perhaps these might be the local deities of this place. I've been living here for months and for years, and I've never thanked them. So he sang a song of thanks and praise this wonderful place that they provided him with. He talked about how terrific it was for meditation with the rivers swirling and churning and the fish and the otters swimming and diving and the king of the mountains behind and how really it was wonderful. And he asked them to drink this Amrita of friendliness. Well, three of the demons who were performing magic disappeared at this. But Milarepa was still unable to make the other four go away. And realizing that these four demons were magical, he sang a song of confidence. And he talked about how as a novice meditator, he'd studied with his guru, and as a mature meditator, he roamed the mountain in solitude, and how he wasn't afraid of these maras and these obstacles. And he said to them, it's wonderful that your demons came today. You must come again tomorrow, and from time to time we should converse. 
three more of the demons vanished. But the remaining demon performed an imposing dance in Milaropa thought. This one is indeed vicious and very powerful. And so he sang to that demon yet another song. It's a song of compassion, a song of open-heartedness. He sang to the demon, Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk out our differences. Ah, I feel so much compassion for you. And with friendliness and compassion, and without concern for himself, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon. But the demon couldn't eat him, and so vanished like a rainbow. Instead of reverting too quickly to the strategies we know so well, I feel we may well ask ourselves what our demons do have to teach us, how much open-heartedness we can bring to being with our own demons, and how out of that very open-heartedness of turning towards our demons rather than away from them, the very faith in ourselves that is so much needed to deepen in this practice is born of that open-heartedness, is born of learning how to embrace our own demons. And out of that embracing and that connection comes learning and comes the faith that is so much the foundation of meditation. Faith is needed to let go. Faith is needed to open. And faith is learning how to be born, of learning how to be present with what is in each moment. May all beings be free from fear. May all beings live with open-heartedness. May all beings live with faith. We have just a couple of minutes quietly together and then we'll have a break.